Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And, and, and if you're wondering, well, where does he tell us to do the impossible? Here's one. He says, love your enemies. I mentioned it already. And, and, and listen, loving your enemies, if, if we're honest today, we're like, Lord, I'm still working on loving my friends. Now, this does not come natural to me. And of course it doesn't. L loving our enemies will never feel natural. We may struggle even once we're doing it. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Our Compassionate Savior. We are taking up in verse 35 of Mark chapter six. We begin by finishing Sam's thoughts on Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, so let's listen in. After feeding them spiritually, well, all that great food for thought left them with thoughts of food. It was getting late, they were getting hungry, and so when the day was far spent, verse 35, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. Now, there's no reason to impugn the motivation as their request from a mere human perspective makes total sense. I mean, there's, by the, when you get to the end of the story, there's 500 men plus their, 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 uh, the women and the children that would have been among them, 5,000, excuse me, men plus the women and children that were among them. So this is a massive group of people. And the disciples look at the situation and they're like, man, we need to do something. So they go to the Lord and they say, hey, we think it's time to send everybody home. It makes sense to tell them, hey, go fend for yourselves. But Jesus has a better plan. It's likely, it's probable that if they all left, not everyone would have ate well that evening. Lots of people were poor. Lots of people were impoverished. Some of them might not have eaten at all. But Jesus wants to make sure everyone's fed. And then he wants to make sure that he demonstrates once again with God, nothing will be impossible. He answers them, verse 37 He answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. Now, their response to this reminds me that I do the same thing, and you probably do as well. When I'm confronted or directed or instructed or commanded by my Lord to do the impossible, my first response is, that's impossible. And uh, he doesn't mind that. He's not surprised by that. And, and, and if you're wondering, well, where does he tell us to do the impossible? Here's one. He says, love your enemies. I mentioned it already. And, and, and listen, loving your enemies, if, if we're honest today, we're like, Lord, I'm still working on loving my friends. This does not come natural to me. And of course it doesn't. L loving our enemies will never feel natural. We may struggle even once we're doing it because there's always that part of us, you see. And, and so what, what he's saying is, if, you, if I command you to do the impossible, you just need to know with the command, I provide the strength. 
And so, uh, by the way, baptism this afternoon, of all the things Jesus commands us to do, and baptism is a command, not a suggestion, uh, it's, it's the easiest one. And you're like, oh, no, it's not. You got to get up in front of everybody and, and get baptized. Listen, he says to do a lot of difficult things. I can promise you going into the water, getting dunked down and brought back up, it's a breeze. And so if you've never been baptized and you're thinking, I just don't know if I could, you can and you should because he said to do it. If you're thinking, but well, I think I was baptized as a baby. You think? Well, yeah, I, my parents have a picture. Ah, so cute, you know, a few days old. And, and I'm like, so here's my question to you. Did you repent of sin? Did you believe in Jesus? Did you receive him as Lord and Savior? Because all those are supposed to happen. Then you're baptized publicly to testify to that personal inward reality. And by the way, it's not really three things, repenting, believing, and receiving. They all go together. You repent of not believing, you believe. Then you receive the one in whom you believe, and then the public baptism to testify of that reality. So if you were on the fence, well, there is no fence. You're either not going to do it or you're going to do it. If you had thought, well, I'm not going to do it, maybe God will change your mind. Well, love your enemies. And here he just says, why don't you go feed those people? Now, Philip turns out is good with math. Uh, we know that Matthew, formerly Levi, was a tax collector. So he was probably pretty good with math, too. But Philip does a quick calculation and he says, you know, 200 denarii, 200 days pay would not feed this multitude uh, effectively. It, it, not everyone would, would get enough. Here are the exact words. He says, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? The, the suggestion, the implication is it's not going to do it even if we had 200 denarii. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out and they said five and two fish. So here are a few principles. You can jot them down. If you're young, you can just remember them. If you're like, you know, not so young, but definitely not old, you can jot them down. If you're older, jot them down and then ask someone to tell you where you put that. And uh, that will come in handy later in the day. So, so the first thing you do when confronted with Something that you need to take care of is examine your resources. That's what they do. He says, and he has to ask them to do it, by the way. Uh, they had some, some money. I doubt they had 200 denarii. But anyway, how many loaves do you have? They said, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. So uh, examine your resources. Second thing, confess your limitations. Peter chimes in after Philip says, Here's what we have. Peter says, but what are they among so many? That's just acknowledging. Here's what we have. And we're beyond convinced it's not going to be enough. So we examine our resources. We confess our limitations. Then he commanded them, verse 39, to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. 
He put them in charge. That commanded their means to give them the task of organizing the people in preparation for the feast. And it was going to be that. Before the end of it, we're told they were all glutted. They were filled to overflowing. They're all like, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. And there was leftovers. So when you take what you have, you confess your inability to make what needs to happen happen with it, then you commit, trust, and obey the Lord. We get to the third thing. They sat down in ranks and hundreds and in fifties. And it's the third is to place your slender resources in the hands of the Lord. Examine your resources, confess your limitations, place what you have in the hands of the Lord. And, uh, and here's what takes place. That sat down in ranks. It sounds kind of military, right? It's really not the picture, though, that, that the words themselves in the Greek, very expressive language, it's not exactly what's being said. It's more like when they would plant, or we today would plant rows of corn, you know, and, and all of the rows are really straight and all the, the things are shooting up and it's just from on a hillside or perhaps an orchard. Uh, everything just looks so Beautiful, And that's what he's seeing. He's saying, get them ready, get them in their ranks. And, and that's what we read. They were in hundreds, groups of hundreds and groups of fifties. And when he'd taken the five loaves, verse 41, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. I think all the gospel writers that shared this particular miracle, and that would be all four, by the way, they all say that he looked up to heaven. It's like, he's like, dad, let's show him, you know. And he blessed and he broke. And it says he gave them to his disciples, set before them the two fish he divided among them all. He gave them to his disciples to set them before him. And the two fish he divided among them all. When it says he gave, it's in a tense that meant he kept Giving It's continuous linear action in the past. And it's only in the past because he's recalling and recording the story for us. So, so he, he looks up to heaven. He, he blesses the food. He breaks it. But the miracle of multiplication takes place in his hands. And that's so important. As long as they were holding on to it, nothing was happening. As soon as it was in his hands and as soon as his blessing was on it, he begins to break it and he begins to give it to them. But he kept giving and kept giving and kept giving. And uh, all of them ate and were filled. Something else before, well, they took up 12 baskets. I'll read it and then I'll share you the something else. And then they took up the 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. 12 baskets of leftovers. That's some good multiplication. Five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 plus all the others. And then there's leftovers. And so those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Listen. God's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. He can do everything we think he can do. He can do everything we think and ask him to do. 
He can do above everything we think and ask him to do. He can do exceedingly above all we ask or think or believe he can do. So, so here, here's the other issue here. Everybody in the crowd was fed. Everybody's needs were met. But there is a group in this story that actually saw a miracle take place in the hands of the Lord. Who? Those closest to him, those who were busy serving him, those who were used by him. And I want to say, just like if you're like, man, I'm just not, the word isn't really grabbing me as it used to, say, Lord, give me that hunger for your word. And in the same way, Lord, give me a hunger to serve you. Because it's, it's not just reading about him or believing in him. It's living for him. And those closest to him who had committed to serve him by serving others, they saw the miracle of multiplication take place in his hands. He wants you to see the same. Well, he sends them across the lake. As I mentioned in the introduction, they go across, they come back, they go across. He goes up to pray and he sees them straining in the middle of the lake. I mentioned four mile journey. It's about 4 a.m. at this point and they're only halfway across. And so they're fighting the wind. The wind was contrary. And uh, well, this is a bit of a deja vu for them because one of their earlier journeys, they had a similar thing, only Jesus was asleep because he was with them in the boat. And he, they wake him up and they ask a, a question that's in the, really a form of an accusation. And I really don't like questions that are, uh, you know, an actual accusation. They wake up and say, Lord, we're about to drown. Don't you care? Because when you ask somebody something like that, are, is it not implying you must not? And the reality is, of course, he cared. He was just trying to grab a few winks and he was able to sleep in the storm. We looked at it earlier in our study of Mark because he didn't say, let's go out in the lake and drown. He said, let's go over to the other side. And so anyway, in that case, he rose up, he rebuked the wind, the seas were calm, the wind was calm. Now he sends them ahead, he goes up to pray, he sees them in need. And I love this, he always comes to us in our time of need. And we see that's exactly what he does with them. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat, go to the other side, to Bethsaida, and he sent the multitudes away. And when he'd sent them away, he departed up the mountain to pray. When evening, verse 47, came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was contrary against them. And it was about the fourth watch of the night. And he came to them. So he saw them. He came to them. It says walking on the sea and would have passed by them. Got to pause on that because I'm like, what? OK, he sees him and he's just he's walking and he's like, what's up? You know, he's just going by. 
I'm wondering if he wasn't just messing with them a little bit because they're like, it's a ghost. And I wonder about these brave sailors who are now disciples of the Lord. They're casting out demons and healing people and preaching the good news. And they're scared of ghosts. I don't really understand it, but he says he would have passed by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. It wasn't a groan or a moan. It was a screech, a screech. You know, they're freaking out. And it says all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. He saw them, he came to them, he comforted them first with his presence, then with his words, then he went up into the boat to them. The wind ceased, they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. His presence, his words, his power now, before we look at this last little snapshot, Matthew, Mark, and John all tell this story, but there's something amazing in Mark's omission of some of the details. Those details being, when they recognized it was Jesus, Peter says, if it's really you, call to me, command me, and I'll come walking to you on the water. So Jesus says, come on down. And he got out of the boat and he starts to walk on water. Of course, he takes his eyes off the Lord. He, he notices, hey, it's really windy and these waves are big. And all of a sudden he begins to sink and he's like, help, Lord. The Lord reaches out. Shortest prayer in the Bible, by the way. Help, Lord. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But, but anyway, he just says, help, Lord. The Lord reaches out to him and takes hold of him. And then they both find their way safely into the boat. Here's the other thing, though. Here's why I bring this up. We know Peter to be a proud man. And we'll see a lot of it in the weeks to come. When Jesus says, we're going up and I'll be handed over and I'll be crucified, but I'll rise again. Peter will be like, that will never happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. When Jesus says, you're all going to forsake me, he's like, I will never forsake you, even if all forsake you, not me, Lord. So over and over and over, we see Peter's pride. We see that he doesn't believe he's like everyone else. He sees himself a bit above everyone else. But there's a picture of humility here. It's in an omission. Because Matthew alone shares the detail that Peter actually walked on water that day. John doesn't say so. Luke doesn't mention the story at all. Mark doesn't mention it. And here's why that's amazing to me. Mark is the only one who wasn't an eyewitness. The others were there for all these events. Mark gets his information from Peter and Peter either omits the fact that he walked on water, which seems inconceivable, but he either omits it or he asks Mark not to record it, not to publish it. Either way, to me, that's a picture of humility. It's a picture of something we don't see much in him, 
But he's like, no, hey, 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 wasn't there something else about that story? And it's like, no, let's just leave it the way it is. I like that. And even if I'm wrong, Peter will probably say, hey, nice try. But, uh, you know, tried to do me good, a solid. So anyway, at this point, with the difficulties, the danger, the possible embarrassment of screeching at the sight of Jesus behind them, the needy crowd soon surround them. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Gennesaret is the land of the Gadarenes. Last time they landed there, they were faced with the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And Jesus, of course, cast the demons out. They went into the swine. The swine went into the water and drowned. So now they're back. Same place where that man said, let me go with you. And he says, no, go home and tell them what great things God has done for you and how he's shown compassion or had compassion on you. So they're back in that same area. They come to the land of Gennesaret. They anchor there. When they got him out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. They ran through the whole surrounding region. They began to carry about on beds those who were sick. And wherever they heard he was, wherever he entered into villages, uh, or cities or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. They brought the sick to him. There's wisdom here. If there's someone you're trying to help and you realize their needs are beyond you, bring them to Jesus. We see it again and again. I'll always emphasize it. Because he doesn't just have an answer. He is the answer. He doesn't just have a cure. He's the great physician. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. So they bring them to him. Many came immediately because remember when he said go home and tell them? He actually went through the Decapolis. Jesus will do that soon. Ten cities publishing what Jesus had done for him. So people come from everywhere. And they're bringing the needy people, carrying some of them, leading others. And as they gather, there, there's something else. Remember the woman who said, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. She had been bleeding for a dozen years immediately power went out from him and she was healed. She went around telling everyone about that. And the last things we read here is that they came and they begged that they might just touch the hem of his garment. As many as touched him were made well. They hear, hey, all she thought is touch the hem of his garment. And that worked. Why? Because Jesus was honoring the faith they had in him. And we saw when we looked at her story and others, imperfect faith, but the faith was in him. Not great faith, just enough because the faith was in him. All who touched him were made well, healed, restored, made whole. So we've seen Jesus. We've seen compassion defined demonstrated and directed, now we're told to go and do likewise.
When Jesus tells us do not be afraid, we tend to think of it as a way of him comforting or calming us. Now, while that's exactly what it does, it comforts us, it actually is a command. In Joshua 1.9, the Lord says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, why command it? Because we need to trust God. We need to learn to trust God if we do not already. The consequences of not trusting God can be dangerous for us. I am convinced one of the biggest reasons the Israelites worshipped the golden calf was because, for some reason, they had lost their trust that God would provide for them as they found themselves in the wilderness. Their fear and lack of trust led them into idolatry. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.